welcome to PB and Justice, the Price Benowitz podcast, where you join our hosts, Dane Phillips and Mitch Greenberg, on their journey to prove what makes our lawyers different and why our lawyers have chosen to pursue a life of fighting for justice. This episode is hosted by Mitch Greenberg, the law champion. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. This is Mitch Greenberg. I'm an attorney at Price Benowitz, and I'm here doing an interview with Joel Need for our PB and Justice podcast. Joel, how's your day today? It's great. It's uh, it's productive uh, until now. Now things are slowing down a little bit, but I'm happy to take a break and uh, you know and talk to you, learn a little bit about you, and tell you a little bit about myself. So this is my first podcast from Israel. I'm in the Holy Land for my son's wedding in quarantine. Unlike Joel, I have very little else to do. So I'm <laughs> going to keep him talking for a couple hours. I'm sure we'll find a lot to chat about. Perfect. Uh, perfect. So Joel, how long have you been with the firm? I've been with the firm for about five years. Prior to that, I was with uh, a, a very large firm. There's a couple of reasons I, I made the move. One was um, I, I've known uh, the founders of the firm since college, um, and I find and I found this a lot not only in my personal career but also with um, the entrepreneurs that I work with. Is that it's important, you know, to work with people you trust. Yeah. Um, you know, despite the fact that I'm great at drafting agreements and negotiating them, one thing you can't draft is trust. Um, and I think that's an important component to any transaction, whether you're working with someone who is on the same side as you uh, to form a partnership, which is one of the things I do, or form a joint venture or start a business, but also when you're working with people on the other side of a transaction. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of lawyers, you know, view um, a transaction as an adversarial process. And there's certainly that component to it, but another component is um, is the fact that you're doing something together. Right. Uh, you know, someone's buying, someone's selling, uh, you know, you're, you're collaborating to, to you know, two parties that otherwise haven't worked together, working together to accomplish something. Um, and that, so, and that, you know, trust is important and, it, and it's great to work with people you trust. Well, the second reason I came over was because my clients are, are generally what's called middle market or lower middle market, which means they're clients that are, uh, you know, not publicly traded companies. They're companies that, you know, can be as small as a, a dental practice and as large as a medical device or medical products uh, manufacturing company um, that can have, you know, two employees or 150 employees, but that, um, you know, allow, um, you know, sort of, you know, the, the, the close touch that I can provide. And also often, you know, would appreciate sort of flexibility in, in billing structure. So whereas large firms bill by the hour, and it's usually a very high hourly rate, you know, I can, I can tell someone that wants to buy a company uh, or do some other transaction, I can very often say, I'll do it for a flat fee of X. Um, and I can anticipate that number in advance, which is great for predictability, and for budgeting purposes, and it's something that I just couldn't do at larger firms. Usually I answer the phone when the clients call, but obviously I want to continue going. Do you have a paralegal? you have someone else who answers your phones? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I do. They, I prefer that, that they ring through to me uh, because I like to answer the call. That's, I mean, that's, that's plain and simple. Um, it's ideal that you know, you're getting that one-to-one -one relationship with me as opposed to speaking to me initially and then getting some 
uh, you know, second year associate who's going to do the bulk of the work, which is not the way I prefer to practice. Sounds a lot like how I practice. We, uh, yeah. And your setting a flat fee is really like the criminal practice most of the time. You just oh, okay. take a chance. And uh, I do a lot of criminal defense also in addition to the workers' comp. I joined Price Benowitz. They brought me in to form a workers' compensation uh, division. But historically, I've had 13 murder cases. I've had some big ones. But I don't want to compete with our guys. I mean, they have some great criminal lawyers who I'm friendly with. Uh, but, yeah, you, you set a fee. You have the experience. You figure out what you think it's going to take. And sometimes you benefit from it. It's easier. Mm -hmm. More often, you put in a little extra work. It's just how it is. Yeah, well, so a little different. So, you know, first, nothing's life or death, fortunately, with what I do. So it's a little lower pressure. And also, it's most transactions, there's, there's a you know, good, it's easy to model and predict, uh, you know, what it's going to cost. You know, I've been doing this for, I get depressed every time I say this, about 25 years. Let me put it this way. If you hired somebody to build your house, and if they couldn't tell, they've been building houses for 25 years and couldn't tell you with pretty, pretty good accuracy what it would cost to build a house, you'd probably go to another building. Sure. Um, and, and that's the same thing. You know, there are, you're right, there are sometimes, you know, like a builder, you can realize that it, it's raining and you can't build as quickly as you want to, or you have to hire some extra manpower to catch up. And those costs should fall on the builder, not on the homeowner. Um, you know, and sometimes the job is a lot easier than you thought it would be. But in general, people are happy. I'm, I'm sure like your clients that they know in advance what things are going to cost. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, most people do have to budget very few. Probably none of my clients have money growing on trees, have unlimited budgets. It sounds like one of the great things about your job is you're frequently building something. You're creating something. Uh, so it's really a, a wonderful thing to have a final product that you everyone's worked towards. As opposed to my situation, it is no less important. It's somewhat less visionary because I have people with criminal charges. You know what the goal is typically. Uh, you don't want to go to jail or be convicted. Depends on the case. With the workers' comp, you need treatments, you need benefits. But there's yeah. nothing that's glorious. I'm not building a house and I'm not building a corporation. It, is that what you love about what you do? Right. Yeah. I, I used to do, when I first started practicing, uh, I worked at a big firm. We were lucky we could sort of rotate through different departments. Uh, and I did litigation and I, I enjoyed it. And I think it's given me a great background uh, or, or tool in the toolbox for being a corporate attorney, a transactional attorney, because when you're drafting these long documents or reviewing a contract for a client, it's, it's often does everyone understand what the terms of the deal are? But it's also, how do you mitigate risk? Right. Uh, you know, you, in my job, you want to either make money for somebody, save money for somebody, or, or reduce risk. And one of, the day, one of the ways, and I think the only way you can reduce risk is know what those risks are. And so when you've had some litigation background, you can project forward and see how things are going to turn out or if, if things go badly. And you can, you can mitigate that risk. So, but the problem, of course, with litigation is you're 100% right. Even when you win, uh, often, you know, your client's ecstatic, they won, and then they get a bill, uh, they still have to pay. Uh, unless, of course, the contract was negotiated uh, so that the loser would pay attorney's fees, which is, again, one of the reasons. Yeah, it doesn't happen much with uh, personal injury or never with this <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. But it does happen in commercial areas. Yes. And sometimes we get a client that'll say, well, I want to sue this guy for $50,000. 
and you say, well, let me look at the contract that somebody else drafted. Sure. You don't get attorney's fees. Bad news. It's going to cost you $80,000 to win this. And you don't go into litigation unless it's an economic benefit for you. And I, and as a result of having that litigation experience, I often spend more time talking clients out of litigation, mm-hmm. which is the right financial move than, than going forward with it. But, uh, but you're right. And I mean, the, of course, you know, the downside is that, uh, you know, not the downside, but it, uh, you know, the gratification of changing someone's life um, or, or saving a life, um, you know, generally doesn't happen. I will say, however, I think from time to time, I've really, you know, helped enhance someone's life. Sometimes an entrepreneur um, will sort of be in a bind uh, and uh, because of my legal experience and also because of my experience of working with a lot of entrepreneurs, I can help find a solution. Um, you know, and it's not life or death, that's for sure. But it, it certainly, you know, can often keep them out of bankruptcy or insolvency um, and help them uh, or help them leapfrog their business um, other to, to a level it wouldn't have otherwise been. So you didn't start your career doing transactional work? That's correct. So I, I started for the first few years, I did commercial litigation, which, you know, again, it's, it's in the commercial space. So it's people suing each other over business disputes. Um, you know, which again is very different than, than criminal or, or, you know, workers comp and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but, but it is, I, I found it to be essential and it really gives me a different perspective, uh, on, on things. And, you know, one of the, um, one of the really important things I learned as a litigator is that litigators like to litigate and they like to win as they should. And I really didn't understand the role of litigators in the larger business environment until I read a book uh, written by a, uh, an officer in the 19th century Prussian military, right? Karl von Clausewitz. Okay, I don't know if you've ever read his book on war, but I tell young litigators uh, to read at least the first chapter of the book. So Karl von Clausewitz is the guy that came up with the expression, um, the fog of war, yes. which I think yeah. a lot of people have heard, or, or friction, which is another one of his concepts, which is, you know, it should take, one day for an army to get from town A to town B, but inevitably uh, a, a wheel breaks off a wagon uh, on a muddy road and holds up the entire convoy, and it takes three days to get there. That's friction, right? It take, things take longer than expected. But one of the interesting things he said was that, uh, and this is a often quoted expression from, from Karl von Klaus, which is, war is diplomacy by other means. That's a paraphrase. But the idea is that war is a means to a political or diplomatic or you know, commercial end. So one of the examples he gives is that the king riles up the populace and says, we're going to fight this other kingdom. And the, the army gets excited and the army says, all right, you know, the generals are ecstatic. And right when the generals are about to crush the enemy and destroy the capital, the king says, you can stop. Uh, because we've secured mineral rights to this mountain range, which is really all we wanted. Right. This incredibly frustrates the generals because their goal is to win absolute victory. But really, they were just called in to accomplish something that couldn't be accomplished by diplomacy. So I tell young litigators and I tell my clients that if you replace, let's see if I can get this right, on live, uh, that, that instead of wars diplomacy by other means, if you substitute litigation uh, everywhere it says war in Karl von Clausewitz's first chapter and commercial um, uh, 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 competition 
for diplomacy, then you get litigation as commercial you know, competition by other means. So, so you use litigation as a tool to accomplish your business objectives, and, and you have to manage litigators uh, in that fashion. Um, so often litigators will say, well, we want, we're going to file for summary judgment, which is a process that can often drag out a trial as opposed to having the finality of a trial when the client just wants to get it over with and, and get a final determination of the level of risk. So often you'll say, well, no, forget it. That's not the client's objective to win. The client is to just to get a final determination of the risk uh, and the liability. So, so it's, it's, it was useful being a litigator early on and helped understand the mindset of the litigators and how they're incredibly useful and invaluable to accomplish objectives, but the objective isn't always winning. The objective is accomplishing the economic or financial objectives of, of your client. I've always told young lawyers, but people when they ask about my job, that there is no form of human interaction more competitive than litigation, than being a trial lawyer uh, of any sort. And we Except are, for Filipino stick fighting. I hear that's that's very, stick fighting. very And it always surprises me uh, with me that competitiveness carries over to, to physical, physical realms. Um, and it surprises me that not everyone's that way. Some people get their competition Jones out at work and they don't have anything else. But uh, yeah, everyone's different. It is... Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. Well, well, right. And, and much like I assume is litigation, going back to Carl von Clausewitz, another one of his uh, famous quotes is, luck plays a role in all of human events, but none so, none so more than war. And, and, I, and I think, unfortunately, again, corresponds to litigation. Um, I think in all, all areas that there, there's a component of luck. By the way, that quote works for everything. I actually used it in the speech I made at my rehearsal dinner where I said luck plays a role in all of human events, but none so more than love. And it really, and uh, you know, everything. it makes you sound, this is a little tip to anybody that's watching or listening, that you put any word in for war and it just makes you sound like, you know, you're, you know, you're talking about. So it's doctors can use it. Luck plays a role in all of human events, but none so more than surgery. I mean, it's really just, you know, it's, it's versatile. And I reckon that's my, that's, Probably the most valuable thing you'll hear from me today is how to, how to manipulate that. Course. So you sound very professorial. Have you taught uh, before? Um, only my children, but um, if only if you consider yelling teaching. Yes. I think that's probably, that's probably it. So. Children are harder than students and clients and virtually everybody else, especially <laughs> driving, which uh, I understand right. you're involved in. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, say that again. I, I said especially trying to teach them to drive, which... I think you're involved in now. Correct. That's right. My 16-year-old, my, my oldest, just got his license, which I have uh, realized, and you have, you have uh, kids that are older than mine and have already gone through this, that a, that a license is like the barest of requirements um, to operate a vehicle. And, um, I, you know, and, and frankly, much like, much like passing the bar, uh, really doesn't teach you much or qualify you for much of anything. Um, and you need to get more experience. So despite the fact that he has a license and he's the law entitles him to drive by himself, uh, you know, in a two ton vehicle, um, I'm really anxious about, about that at this point. We say in martial arts that uh, your black belt is just the beginning. That's where you have the ability to learn the martial art. Everything else is just put, getting your mind, like law school, is putting your mind in a frame that you can 
learn how to function. And, and that's so, so, yeah. Yeah. So, Mitch, are you saying that if I uh, happen to unfortunately find myself in a bar and uh, in a verbal dispute with someone and he says, you better watch out, I'm a black belt, I can tell him, well, my friend Mitch says, really, you're not qualified to, to crush me. Is that, is that, is that, what you can tell, so if he says that, you're going to beat his ass because your belt has not, your belt holds up your pants ultimately. It holds, holds your gi clothes. Has, when I was just starting in judo, I, I was beating black belts because, not because I was great at all. They were pretty. They had beautiful form, taekwondo, pretty kicks, but they couldn't put them together to fight. They lacked the aggression. They, they lacked, you want to go right through somebody. And you cannot teach that. So, Mitch, I, I think you are giving good advice. I'm not going to test that advice, um, but, but I, I do think it's, it's valid and it's good. When, when my uh, older son was in driver's ed and we needed to take him out, I did it twice and never again because it can teach you to want to kill your own kids, and I don't need that. He doesn't need that. With my younger son, my ex-wife and I were like, no, we're just not doing it at all. We will pay whatever it takes to people with a car with, you know, two pedals and maybe two steering wheels. Is, yeah, you have to learn when to delegate. Well, right. Well, I, I taught um, three uh, South American nannies how to drive in the U.S. So I have no fear. And one, one of them um, drove like, uh, you know, one foot on each pedal, like so. Mario Andretti. And, but unlike what the Beastie Boys say, she did not drive well so that's um for all those beastie boy fans out there and can they can identify they can identify the song that i am paraphrasing i'll give you one free hour of legal services there you go that's that's the uh that's i'm the feeling your love for the beastie boys just exploding out of you <laughs> that's big right. fan doubt. have you seen them in concert i i have not um i um and I didn't realize, I thought I was a fan of them, but then they, they had a documentary, I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix, yeah. uh, about the Beastie Boys, and uh, it was uh, pretty fantastic, and I realized there are some crazy Beastie Boy fans out there. And, and, you know, one thing I love about the Beastie Boys, you know, enjoy their music, but, I mean, maybe I'm the only person that thinks this. I, I really like them because when you watch them do what they're doing, it makes you feel like, hey, if they can do it, I could probably pull that off. And if they can pull that off, then I can pull off anything. So it's really, it's That's really uh, inspiring. Yeah. It's wonderful to see people who you don't have a lot of respect for their ability and they accomplish it. It's encouraging. <laughs> they do. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, perseverance and experimentation and just going for it, you know, you know, counts for a lot. And that's, you know, and, and it's funny, I say that, but I don't really do it. The, you know, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and I like to consider myself uh, an entrepreneur with no appetite for risk. Uh, which is really one of the essential components to entrepreneurs. So I love the ride. I love being part of the thrill. I really have no appetite for, for doing that. And I think, frankly, that's, that's probably what you want in a transactional attorney, the guy that's, you know, you don't want the Will Ferrell character in um, old school that's saying, right. yeah, just do it. Just, you know, buy the house or rent the house. You want somebody saying, all right, you can do that. Here's the downside. Here's the upside. Here's a way to mitigate, you know, that downside. And when, when you are that way, the best place to be is in a law firm with people who have the money that isn't yours, yet who are also very entrepreneurial. So you get your fix working with them. And it's that's true. partly why I joined. Yeah, it was yeah, uh, absolutely. 
So you were telling me a story before I started recording that I didn't get the end of. Yes. So I'm going to ask you now. What happened in your boxing match with your professor? Well, so so the so we we boxed. I was his uh, as his research assistant, mm-hmm. and he kind of sized me up and said, "We're about the same, you know, body weight. We should box." So when you are when someone makes that offer to you, and they uh, you know they're basically your boss, and they can determine at least one grade in one <laughs> of your classes in law school, you don't say no. And you know he. He had told, I told him that, that I had wrestled in high school. So, you know, he's sort of like, all right, well, you can, you know, you kind of got the experience or the mindset for it. So why not? So, so we, there was no boxing ring at our law school. So we went to a, a racquetball court. Yes. Um, which seems fine. You know, it's isolated. It's, you know, got four walls, which is great, but here's the downside. So when you box, you, 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 know, you put on these these gloves that that aren't really gloves. I mean, they're kind of like mittens, right? But they're not even you know you can't manipulate anything with them. There's a place for your thumb and a place for your four fingers, and and that's it. And you have to you can't fully put them on by yourself. So you have to you know tie them on, or I have sort of these Velcro straps. Mm-hmm. So keep in mind. So but once you get them off, they're kind of hard to get off. And remember that a, a racquetball court, the way that the door works is that the, the there's no door knob. There's sort of a a, a hook that's sort of flush with the wall. You have to kind of yep. get in there with a finger and pull out the, 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 the hook and then turn it. Yes. And so I was always afraid that he would knock me unconscious and then not be able to get out of the gloves that I had laced him into. And we would just kind of be stuck there, you know, in the soundproof chamber basically until I regained consciousness. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So, so fortunately that never happened. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned before we, we spoke or before we started recording that when we first got in and laced him up, he said, Oh, hold on one second. And he pulled out this bridge that was you know, holding in his two front teeth. And I, I said, you know, wow, you know, I assumed it was a car accident. How did that happen? He goes, Oh, well, I, I boxed in the Navy and I, uh, and I, you know, you know, it's a boxing accident. And at that point I thought, even this is not worth potentially getting an A in the class. So, but we, we did it anyway. And I had this secret hope that he would somehow cut me or knock me unconscious and, you know, give me a pity A, a pity, uh, sure. you know, yeah, in the con law class. It, it didn't happen, but, but uh, I guess that's good. I got the A anyway, and that's fine. Maybe because I, I, you know, subjected myself to his abuse. It was great. It was, you know, again, one of those sports, like I'm sure the martial arts you've taken that there's no pause. If you pause, you you get punched in the face. Right. So you have to be even if you're defending yourself the entire time. You, there's no break in it, um, and it was uh, it was a few. It was fun. We did it a few times. You know, incredible cardiovascular workout, which I don't think anybody thinks about. Um, oh yeah, and, you know, and a lot of fun. They do if they've tried it. When I was, I boxed one time. I've done kickboxing, but actual boxing one time. My father, I was 15. I'm By the way, I love I love how I love how sort of you know self deprecating you are. Well, I've never done boxing, just only kickboxing, which of course is is by the way I believe the most deadly of all martial arts. I could be wrong about that, but it seems seems pretty pretty brutal. But well, unless you're using live knives, but yes, it, it, <laughs> okay, yes, people do die. Uh, so I was 15, never boxed before. We happen to have gloves in the house, boxing gloves. My father, who was. About 5'10", I was maybe 5'3", when I was 15, 5'4". I was in good shape in swimming, but never fought. And yeah. uh, he said, you think you're tough, let's box. Said, okay. 
So we go in the basement and put the gloves on. He says, one rule, no hitting in the face. Like, okay, good. I don't want to get hit in the face. Yeah. First thing he does, jabs me right in the mouth. I'm like, oh, come <laughs> on, man. So I just saw red. Everything went red. So I go, I fake with the left. He turns his head, one punch. He, he spun around on the ground, knocked him out. He never boxed me again. And you talk about luck, and I, right? And I bet he never told you to take out the garbage again either, you know, and that was, that was it. So skill is luck with good timing because it was pure luck at the right, right. time. Well, you know, chance plays a role in all of human events, but none more than boxing. None right? more so than boxing or, uh, or dating or, um, yes. I would like to think not medicine because uh, that seems like it should be exact some of the time. You, you only say that as a doctor when there's a bad outcome. Um, and, you know, that's it. All right. What you don't say as a doctor is, oh, man, I'm sorry. This is the wrong way. Sorry about that. <laughs> they don't usually say that. So That's true. That's true. Let's see. You, you love what you do? Your job? Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, you know, I, I, unlike a lot of other areas of the law, you know, as we talked about it, it you know, there, there's usually a, a positive outcome for, from everything. Um, and it's, you know, when someone's, you know, mergers and acquisitions, typically someone's buying something and someone's selling something. So someone is, uh, you know, in, a, in an acquisition scenario, someone's getting money they wanted and someone's getting uh, an asset or a company that they want. So positive outcomes. And, you know, as I mentioned, I often, uh, you know, get involved in disputes before they go to litigation. And that's also satisfying as well. Um, you know, you know, a good example is I, I recently had a case where there was a, uh, a real estate transaction that went bad. And there was, you know, a six figure deposit that was on the line. My client had made an earnest money deposit on this transaction. So it was a big deal. The transaction went south. The, um, you know, we were pretty much in the right. Um, and the, uh, the other side refused to give up the deposit. So mm -hmm. my client said, well, I want to sue. I said, you can sue. Um, but it is, it's going to cost you, um, you know, as much money as you're going to, to sue for. And so you're really going to end up with nothing. So let's try to negotiate this out. So the, um, you know, we send some softness on the other side and we, um, the, the short version is, is the initial offer was, uh, you know, from the, from the, from the seller was, why don't we just split the deposit at 50, 50, this of course enraged my client. Um, there were some sort of, you know, extraneous issues involved that made this an even more frustrating situation for my client. And he really wanted, he said, I don't care. I've, you've told me not to sue only because I think I'm right, but I don't care. I'm right. And I want to sue. So why don't we tell them to go jump in a lake? We sent some softness on the other side. My client said, I want, I want them to pay every dollar back. And I said, let's give them $1,500, $1,500. Let's just, you know, we got to give them something. And why? And again, going back to books on war, if you uh, read the sayings of Sun Tzu, mm -hmm. uh, he said, uh, you know, if you want your enemy to retreat, you know, leave him and out. Um, and uh, or another expression was when you want your enemy to retreat, build him a golden bridge. So I said, let's give them something so that they, they can declare victory uh, and, and, you know, in their own mind. And fifteen hundred dollars is a lot less than the eighty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars right. cost of litigating this. Sure enough, they took the offer. Um, the psychology, I think, is what did it worked, uh, and I could tell my client. 
Sun Tzu says, build your opponent a golden bridge. They're not buying anything golden for $1,500, and it was a successful outcome. So that, you know, is not the sort of, you know, you're right, usually it's transaction work, you're building stuff. This was a another negotiation, pre-litigation. I don't know if the other guy ended up being happy. I think he did because it's psychologically, he said he won something, um, and I think that's what, that's what closed the deal as opposed to holding out for every last dollar of the six figure deposit. I think that was a positive. My client was ecstatic. Um, and so again, you know, I think you're right. There's, there's positive, generally positive outcomes to most things I do. Unfortunately, some things go to the litigation. There's nothing you can do about it, but, uh, but you know, but there's, you know, but, but usually uh, it, it's, it's positive and that's, that's what's gratifying about the work. And that's, that's why I enjoy it. You know, we see a lot of lawyers who are incredibly smart and talented at um, what they do. What they may not be good at is managing their clients, especially the client's expectations. You only accomplished that and avoided your client losing a ton of money in litigation costs. You accomplished it because you were able to connect with your client. Obviously, you sense the weakness in the other guy, which is, all, which is incredibly important in any competition, any combat to see the other guy's perspective, to give him that golden bridge, the, the, the way out. But uh, to see people do all of those things together, it's, it's the goal. It's the dream. Well, right. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, I think, you know, you talk about, you know, sort of, you know, what your minimum qualifications are when things happen. Um, and, you know, when you, when you get, get out of law school, the, um, you know, you're told, you're basically taught the nuts and the bolts mm. I mean, and not much more, uh, maybe, maybe not even that much, but, but you're taught, you know, you know, there's, there's sort of reason and rationale and what is especially the case, I assume it's the case with all forms of, of practicing law, but certainly with, you know, any negotiation where there's, you know, money or other sort of, you know, uh, concessions involved or, or perks involved. And certainly with acquisition, there's a, there's a psychological factor. Um, and this gets, you know, to acquisitions as well. You know, often I'm dealing, especially these days, um, with the, the baby boomers, you know, sort of retiring and what I call the silver wave. There's a lot of businesses for sale. And a lot of these businesses were built by the people that were selling. Uh, and for whatever reason, either their kids aren't interested or they don't have kids. There's no one to pass it along to. And a lot of these are very lucrative businesses. You know, often they're very well run, sometimes not so well run. But in all cases, they are... The, 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 you know, the babies, uh, they're the life's work and the, and the you know, sort of the, 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 you know, the creations of these, these, these owners. And so when they sell their business, it's not just, I'm selling a business, how much money am I going to make? You know, flipping a house, I'm, you know, selling stock. It is, right. this is, this is their, this is their personality. This is how they define themselves. And they, and they want to know, uh, you know, who they're selling to, not just how much the check is. And so it's important that consider those factors uh, whenever, um, you know, whenever you're buying, a, you know, advising clients on buying a business, you know. And so, and, and, and often deals die because that sense of confidence in, in where their legacy is going uh, just isn't there. And, you know, they don't teach you that in law school. You know, they don't teach you um, that, you know, litigators like to litigate. And, uh, you know, they don't teach you that, you know, sometimes people want to feel a sense of victory even when they're losing. And, you know, and all those things factor into it. These are all, psych you know, I don't know if Sun Tzu called it psychology, but, you know, that's what it was. I don't know if Carl von Clausewitz, you know, you know, talked about it in those terms, but, but that component is an essential component to 
you know, to all, all transactions and, you know, whether that's managing your client or, or it's, you know, advising your client on how to negotiate in order to affect the outcome they want. Um, you know, all those things I think are, you know, important, you know, elements. And I think frankly, they come, you know, with experience. I don't think I knew that when I first started, but you know, I certainly do now. You talk about people's persona and wanting to win. Uh, so this is mine, the law champion. Um, it's, yeah. I love it. There yeah. we go. We got a, a hoplite there. I'm not sure what, we were, what kind of uh, soldier. It, it, yeah, it's, it's a Spartan hoplite. It's the same thing. The, yep. uh, the warrior, the 300. That's uh, right. And that, that's always been my approach. And what's hard for someone who would love to win with your foot on the guy's body, uh, he's lying on his shield, when you want to do that every time, but it's rarely in your client's best interest to go for that kind of win. Uh, I mean, sometimes you have no choice. In a criminal case, sometimes you have no choice or, or even PI. But yeah, it, it is good to be able to have the discipline, I guess, and wisdom to know when you need to seek another way because it's just better for your client. It's not about us. Uh, well, yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, every, every you know, sort of um, discipline, I think, in the law and, 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 and also partners, you know, at a law firm, um, you know, serve in, a, you know, an essential role. And you, you know, reminds me of, um, of uh, I think, Bruce Willis. We're going to use movie references, right? We talked about, uh, you know, uh, Carl von Clausewitz. Now, you know, now let's talk about Bruce Willis. I think it was the siege. Uh, he played a military officer and, he, and they were some sort of yes. insurrection or some sort of terrorist activity in New York. And, and the, uh, the president or somebody ordered in the army and he said, you know, the, the army is a blunt sword. Uh, you know, we, we only had to do one thing, but that was their job. And, you know, he did his job, that sort of thing. You know, and, the, and, and, you know, that I think is the essential element of, of litigators, which is you want the litigator that says, I'm going to crush the opponent. You may want to, you may rein in that dog of war um, at the last minute to, you know, to finalize the, the objective um, but you want you want that dog barking and biting hard. You don't want I, you know no no no. Some clients want to be um, Leonidas in the Thermopylae Pass and and say you know let let's you know you know fire as many arrows as you wanted us. We'll fight in the shade. We'll fight the shade. Uh, right, but you you don't you know. But as the business owner, you don't want to die you know on some narrow strip of land. Um, but you want to have somebody who is willing to do that for you, and that will help you accomplish your business goals. So outside of your legal practice, what do you like to do for fun? Um, let's see. So I, um, I've got three kids, and as, as you know uh, from when your kids were younger, that is, uh, you know, kids are the, um, the most expensive and time-consuming and rewarding hobby you'll ever have. Um, so, so that is, uh, you know, de definitely going on right now. I've got three kids that are doing that. Um, so what else do I like to do? I like to, um, I, I go trapping skeet shooting, which I think is a lot of fun. Oh, wow. Um, I've, I've, I've never killed anything other than a lobster and some cockroaches, um, but you know, no other animals. Um, but it's, it's a fun sport. It's kind of, you know, I know, I know a lot of people like to golf. Um, I'm, I'm not a golfer. I used to think I didn't have the temperament for it, but I, I think it's that I just don't have the skill for it. Right. Um, and the, um, uh, but, but, but skeet shooting is, is great because it's, it takes a lot less time. You get to do it with friends and 
with golf, you're supposed to end up with pretty much all the golf balls you started with. I never do. Um, but with skeet, you're supposed to get rid of all of your shells. Awesome. Um, so that I find, uh, you know, enjoyable. So I do that. Um, I, I like to make, um, I do a sort of children's books for my kids. Um, oh, nice. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of progressing in levels of difficulty right now. I'm, I'm working on a pop-up book for, um, for my, uh, for my youngest, which involves paper engineering which is a incredibly difficult discipline uh, and fascinating. And it, I could go down a rabbit hole with that. Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, and then I'm involved in some nonprofit activities and, and that's, that's pretty much what I do. So, yeah, you mentioned something. Uh, I'm in Israel right now for my son's wedding. I'm being quarantined. It's wonderful. And you mentioned something with the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. What's your involvement there? Right. So I there's a group training uh, them clearly in, in <laughs> yeah, sure. Fitness and- I just I just give them quotes. That's all. I give them quotes. Uh, the um, so I am involved. There's there's a five hundred one c three a U.S. organization called Friends of the IDF, um, and it was founded by some Holocaust survivors in uh, in Chicago when they realized that that the you know the Israelis there's Israeli defense force, uh, all the military, they're all conscripts, right? Everyone serves. So, you know, you, you, men serve three years, women serve two years. There's some exceptions to that, but that's generally the rule. You have to serve. You graduate from high school, you serve. But unlike the U.S., where you've got the GI Bill, you've got, uh, you know, the USO, um, you, you, everyone's a volunteer, um, you know, you can go after college, um, you know, and, and, you know, sort of have your college degree and then go and then join. In, in Israel, it's all voluntary. So there's no VA, there's no GI Bill, um, there's no USO. Because everyone kind of, you know, the thought is everyone does it. You know, we, we can't give, you know, we can't provide those services to the entire population. So some folks in the U.S. said, well, let's, let's help that. So we uh, raise money for scholarships for underprivileged folks, um, you know, again, with, with, the, with the military, everyone goes. So if you have a family where there's a guy who's graduating from high school or a girl who's graduating from high school who would otherwise help out the family and raise some money, you know, help out with the money and help, help support the family, they're not, it's not possible anymore. Right. Um, sometimes there's financial assistance. Um, there's a program for something called the Lone Soldiers, which are non-Israelis who fly to Israel um, and, and enlist, they are volunteers. Um, and they, they serve for, you know, any, anywhere from, I think a year and a half to, to three years. Again, it's a weird situation because when you, uh, leave, uh, when you've got leave or a weekend off or a holiday off and you're an Israeli, you go home. Right. But right. if you, and there, there are these sort of barracks that, that are designed for that. So what does someone do that's volunteered that flew over there? Well, there's nothing. So they build barracks for them. They allow them to fly home. They help them out with the support services they'd otherwise get from their family or just know from being an Israeli citizen or having family that's Israeli citizens. They have a, there's about 5,000 of these kids that do that. Um, so they provide services for that. So they, you know, they really provide, and they also help build gyms uh, at military bases. You know, military bases in Israel are not the sort of huge uh, bases they are in the U.S. with commissaries and recreational facilities and all that sort of stuff. So they help out with that. So it's, it's really gratifying. It's, it's really, you know, again, it's, it's the youth 
of, of Israel um, and, and other countries that, that you know, are, are to a certain extent sort of deprived of what other people do because of the, uh, you know, sort of exigent, you know, security situation in Israel, all hands are on deck and off to serve. And this helps alleviate some of those, um, you know, some of those burdens um, that, that they have because of, because of that. And so that's great. So I'm the, I'm the, uh, the president of the Virginia chapter of the Friends of the IDF. Um, and and but I've been helping raise money and throw galas and, and, and contribute myself. And it's, it's really been a lot of fun and it's, and it's great to help out these kids. So we have something in the workers' comp field. It's called Kids Chance. And we raise money to uh, give scholarships to the kids of injured workers, badly injured workers. Uh, yeah. And that's in a group and their biggest funds are raised through the gala. And also they have, right. a, they have a race each year, a, a running race, which, uh, well, I haven't done recently, but back when I was running, I won their first one. But there weren't a lot wow. of people. It was not a lot of people. I was still happy, but not a lot. Hey, you take it where you can get it, so that's nice. Yeah, I will take it where I can get it. it it's just really good. This other thing I did that is military-oriented, so you talk about having support in, in the, the government, which sounds like Israel doesn't support them a lot. Our National Guard here in Maryland, we have something called the Maryland Defense Force, which is in our state constitution, the fourth line of defense. Uh, we're volunteer professionals. We have legal, so we have a JAG unit, we have medical, and then we have an engineering corps. So with volunteer, we wear the, the ACUs, which we have to buy ourselves. Uh, I'm a captain because I have a professional degree, and we help them with if, say the family needs help with things I know nothing about, like a rent issue, uh, we try yeah. to help for free, I mean, as much as possible. So, yeah, I, I was involved in that. It wound up folding, but I think it's back, it's back up. It is nice to help people who were involved in the military because they, they do a lot and they don't have as many resources sometimes. Right. And, and one more thing that the FIDF does, you reminded me when you talked about the, the money you raise for, for kids of people that are injured. One of the, there's sort of a bereavement focus where there are siblings and, and children of, of soldiers who were killed. Actually, speaking of Maryland, they fly them to the U.S. and, and take them to a camp, a summer camp in Maryland. Oh. Um, it's called Capital Camp. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I've with been to Capital Camp. There you go. So it's, I think they've got a week or two week uh, period where they bring them in. Uh, I've unfortunately never been able to make it up there for it. Um, but again, it's just sort of the, you know, they have a counselors there. And, my son uh, went there. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 Actually, that's funny. My, my son went there uh, as well for a couple of years. So it's, it's a great camp and it's great to be able to provide that facility. You know, it's a great facility to these kids that just don't have, you know, the access to that and has really suffered, you know, a huge loss. As I recall, they had a good special needs program. My son has, uh, my younger son is at Asperger's. So it was a a good setup. That's great. great. Did you go to camp yourself back in the day? I I did. I went to two different types of camps. I went to, you know, sleepaway camps. I'm a camp called Camp Coleman, which which was a great camp in Georgia. Uh, I grew up in Florida. So that was sort of the, the closest camp. And then I went to, I went to Boy Scout camp. Oh. Um, which, which was kind of like Lord of the Flies. So, yeah. uh, and, and it was even worse than Lord of the Flies because I was an ambitious Boy Scout. I wasn't in a very large troop, so I wanted to go to camp to earn merit badges. It was like merit badge university. And so in order to go without a troop, you signed up for something called the provisional troop. And looking back on the provisional troop, it was kind of like, like the Dirty Dozen because it was a, it was a group of, of 
kids just like me who really were gunning for Eagle Scout and I made Eagle Scout. So we talk about uniforms. The only uniform I've ever worn is a Boy Scout uniform. Hmm. And everybody else that was in this provisional troop, there are probably, I don't know, like 10 to 12 kids, you know, per session, whatever, whatever size it was, were just like us. Very good, very motivated, but no unit cohesion. So one of the competitions that they'd have during this week of camp is, you know, campsite inspections. But none of us cared about the campsite because right. we didn't care about those things. But when it came to sort of excelling individually or even as a group, like you know, not tying or building a raft, we would crush, crush everybody else who was there because their parents made them go or whatever. And it was, we were sort of like this group of ragtag people, but when it came to, you know, perform, we would just destroy everyone. But also it was horrible the way we treated each other. And thankfully I made it out alive. So uh, it was good times. So. so you're the guy with the con show. The guy, exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. I'm the guy, I'm the guy that was trying to convince the other guys to break into the commissary. Cause I heard there was some like, knockoff Oreo cookies, Hydrox. Mm. Remember those things I remember yeah, Hydrox. That, that we could get, we could get like the entire camp supply and keep it to ourselves. If we pulled off this sort of heist operation, that's more what it was like. So, you know, less, less like piggy and cop shells. So I went to this camp in West Virginia, Timberidge, White Mountain, Teen Town. You may have heard of it. A lot of Floridians came up okay. and the score when you broke into the kitchen, giant cans of peaches, Okay, that was huge. And the um the chocolate pudding, which God only knows what was in it. But you scored that, you go over to the girls' cabins and, and you're set for the night. Nice. Hey ladies, would you like some chocolate pudding? Yeah, right. Nice. That that's fantastic. That you know, we may have to come back and do a do a second interview. I think so. This has been a lot of fun. I'm not sure how much we actually talked about the law, but I, I have enjoyed it, absolutely. But now everyone in the firm's gonna know who you are. That's good Everyone stuff. in the world, perhaps, when this perhaps. becomes huge. We'll see. We'll see. Fantastic. All right, man. Well, listen, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Hey, thank you very much. And, and uh, congratulations, Bob Latavo, again, on your son's wedding. Thank and you. Enjoy it when you get out of quarantine, finally.